to Radar Peak, a three-body podcast reviewing our way through the three-body problem and discussing its real-life parallels. I'm Allie. And I'm Brett. And on today's episode, the social reset of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, but also Brad Pitt, Netflix, and adapting the three-body problem for an international audience. And we discuss chapter one, The Madness Years. Energy unit reporting. All systems go. Cutting unit reporting. All systems go. Amplifier unit reporting. Is this thing on? If so, you're listening to Radar P. Welcome to our first episode. This is Allie. I'm Brett. And it feels like such a long time coming. We have been talking about having a podcast for forever, it feels like. Yeah. I mean, we've only known each other for like, well, a lifetime, many lifetimes. Sure. But in this lifetime, under a year. Yeah. And it feels like every time we are together anyway, or at least with a group of people, we always like wind up having these conversations that people around us are always like, what's your podcast? Where can I listen to this more? And we're like, I'm like, thank you so much. I'm like, get off my dick. (laughs) But also, that's sort of like what started this whole train rolling. Give the people what they want. And we will. So you're welcome. They thoroughly crushed us. They they pulverized us and and strong armed us into making this. We we didn't want to make it. (laughs) But uh, you know what? We're going to. We're going to. And. You know, Brett and I, we talk about a lot of things. I'll tell you something. We talk about a lot of things. I say that all the time. Brett and I talk about a lot of things. But so when we were like, what is our podcast going to be about? We were like, well, what is it about? There were a couple of iterations, honestly. But I feel like the most sort of like through line throughout all of our group and group dinner conversations have to deal with. Group sex conversations. Have to deal with space, have to deal with anything existential, anything on the periphery of, you know, what it means to have, possess, practice magic, yes. to, you know, like manifesting. To this, It's such a wide range. And then we were thinking and ideating, and all of those things fall under the category of technically sci-fi. I just want to make clear, like, this podcast is not just about a sci-fi book. We're not a book club podcast. This is a podcast about the explosive, visible, and non-visible reality that you can see through this book series called The Three-Body Problem. It's got three books in the series. I'm almost done with the first book, but I've decided I'm not going to continue on. I'm going to catch up to where I am through this podcast. And then when we get there, you'll be getting my live reactions. I like that. We can finish it together. Exactly. And then, I mean, second and third book will be the same thing because I haven't read those. But Brett has a full view of like a God bird's eye view of the series. And he knows a lot more than I do. But basically, we're using the three body problem to 
one, tell the story of the three-body problem. Maybe you don't like to read. Maybe you love to read and want to hear it again. Doesn't matter. We're going we're gonna to make our way through the three-body problem. And we're also going to talk about every theme that we possibly can, which comes up in it, which will take you to places that I can't begin to explain. If you're unfamiliar, because it's a sci-fi, this is one of those books that it sort of deals with in, in, in the vaguest of terms, so we don't give away any of the good stuff yet. It deals with what it means for humanity and what happens when, for the first time, intelligence outside of our solar system is detected, which feels very appropriate because, as you may or may not know, NASA is gearing up for at the end of this month in August of 2022, the beginning of the Artemis mission, which is what's going to take astronauts back to the moon to stay. Eventually, the moon is going to be a waypoint between Earth and Mars. Oh, my God. They're building JFK on the moon. Basically. LaGuardia, JFK. It's like Earth to moon. Moon, do you want to go to Jupiter? Exactly. There's a layover in Mars. Exactly. You know? To the clouds of Venus. There's also, you know, there's a, a, a privately funded... Uh, space exploration team that's going to the clouds of Venus in 2023. What? Purely to study if there are any life forms or if there are any of the essential building blocks of life forms up in the clouds above Venus. Because we know we can't track. the surface is not habitable. NASA has sent probes. They're able to read the temperatures, the things like that. So they know that the surface of Venus is not habitable. But there's no way to say yet if life couldn't still or already be living in the clouds in the atmosphere above it so there's, wow. a, there's a private space company doing that next year so a lot of the themes and a lot of sort of the things that happen within this novel are just so timely because they are almost lining up in a way where it feels less science fiction and more just like science it doesn't make any leaps in terms of what's possible. No, because a lot of, and Ali, I think you have probably are going to be able to speak to this a little better than I am, but specifically, Lucy Sin in the source text references very heavily actual science, theorems of Einstein, the... Hubble's Law. The Planck scale. I mean, things that you can literally look up in a science textbook today and the fictionalized story that he's telling is based on the reality. So in a lot of ways, there's a strange overbleed of not really being able to tell where the actuality stops and the fictionalized reality starts. But don't take our word for it. Take Netflix's word for it. Yeah, because actually, for a long time, I thought that he was a member of the cast, which I was wrong. It's fake news. But Brad Pitt is working with Netflix to adapt the story into a short form series for the international audience. Yeah, and can you tell everyone who Brad Pitt is for our friends who don't so know? So if you've never heard of Brad Pitt... No, I'm just kidding. Everybody has heard of Brad Everybody's Pitt. Everybody's He's a household name. He's like a Kleenex. But Brad Pitt is producing... Is, yeah, right? Ex executive producing. Executive producing an, a television adaptation of The Three-Body Problem with the showrunners of Game of Thrones. Which, that brings up for me sort of, that's love-hate for me. Because I will admit, I did not read the Game of Thrones source texts. Mm. 
However, I heard everyone who did read the source text who were highly upset with the direction that the show took once the showrunners got out of the side of established canon and they had to just start figuring out figuring it out and making end? up what's going to happen. Yeah, Netflix has invested hundreds of millions of dollars on the production of this adaptation. Amazon was alleged to have put forth a billion dollar bid for the right to have made it but i guess they lost that somehow to netflix that is so much money so much money like like even the highest grossing movies end up making maybe a billion billion dollars but like so few movies make a billion dollars okay my question though the live action aladdin made a billion dollars weirdly it did yeah good for disney right that's Unexpe- for Mark Platt. Unexpected. Anyways, what were you going to say? I was going to say, because it's Netflix, I'm curious who's going to be doing the theme music. Right. Who's not going to be doing the theme music? Okay. Um. Well, Bjork won't be doing the theme music. You don't think? No. What would it be like if Bjork was doing it, though? I mean, okay, just imagine credits are rolling. Maybe it's some beautiful B-roll footage of, like outer space and then now we're in like inner city china now we're you know that kind of thing bjork's track begins three body. something like that i also three body. i can't really take credit <laughs> for that characterization DK. no i have to give credit where it's due that's fully our lord and savior katya from rupaul's drag race in her multi-award winning portrayal of Bjork in the Snatch Game. Mm, I would say great artist so steal. Just have to... <laughs> thank you, Katya. Sure. Thank you, Katya. <laughs> Billy Joel probably won't be doing it. No. <laughs> it's not really a Billy Joel vibe, but it would be like... I feel like a much more <laughs> sort of like thematic, cinematic, almost like how HBO and Westworld, things like that are very big feeling cinematic to just sort of, because I mean, the whole thing is predicated on sort of like the moments leading up to and the moment that humanity discovers there's intelligence, not only not on this planet, but in a different star system altogether and what that means. Right. So I feel like it, whatever it winds up sounding like is going to be something both small and epic right in its scope foreign and familiar but ultimately will leave you feeling hopefully like this sense of wonderment and smallness okay i feel like it's gonna go something like this we're gonna have to cut there because we don't have clearance but see where you're going Should we run it back a bit and just give these people some historical backdrop? I mean, give me a refresher, too. I would love it even. Okay. So what do you know about Mao Zedong? I know that he led a cultural reset in China. Mm -hmm. Good guy or bad guy? Um, I think good and bad is subjective. It was a trick question. That was the only right answer. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's about as much as I knew. And then I... Did a little reading, and you know my horoscope did say make use of your intensity. So I, I thought 
off to the races sure. and it's going to stay up all night and read about the history of Maoism, which funnily enough is a term that Mao Zedong himself resented. He really wasn't into like the oh, whole really? cult of personality that was created around him. Like having a, a school of thought literally called Maoism. No, he was just like, these are my thoughts and my name did is he Mao have, Zedong. Did he have a name for it or he just wanted people to adopt? It was called the thoughts of Mao Zedong. Got it. Your base. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, but okay, so let's go. Let's just start. You're Mao Zedong. You are born in a town called Shaoshan, um, and you live on a farm, and it's you know very agricultural um, area of China, and you're 13 years old, and your dad comes along and he says, Mao, I've got something for you. You be Mao. Is it a puppy? Guess again. Is it a skateboard? No. One more try. Is it a brand new car? <laughs> it's a wife. Okay, wow. So his dad is literally like, you're 13, it's time to boo up. Yeah. And here's your 17-year-old maiden, Luo. Okay. So an older woman, you could say. An older girl, more accurately. Um, and yeah, and Mao, I mean, how would you react if you were being married if i'm 13 and your wife is 17 and it, well, i don't know that i would really have well first of all wife yeah i know <laughs> so react second to that of all, first second of all um You're if like, i'm 13 i don't know that i'm wanting to get married at 13 no more like 14 maybe like if at all yeah. so dad really is pretty dead set on this marriage and listen dad comes out of a different generation he comes out of the Qing dynasty which is very interestingly at its end when Mao is you know just a young boy Bas okay. basically the Qing dynasty started in 1644 okay. and went all the way to like 1914 or no 1912 wow yeah that's Older than America. Yeah. But not by much. It's only like 20 years older than America. So, you know, the last imperial dynasty of China. I'm not saying. You know what we're saying. Mao basically won't even acknowledge his wife. Oh. She's just at dinner being ignored, which is really uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. No. <laughs> Luckily, never. People always talk to me. But... No, Luo won't even be acknowledged by her 13-year-old husband and actually dies at age 21. Because of... Disgrace, obviously. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah. Literally, That's so sad. She dies of disgrace. Now, 14-year-old widow, Mao Zedong, goes and just kind of like does what boys do. Does he remarry once she dies? Um, Much later in okay. life. He does end up being married again, yes. But no, he kind of like is like, all right, I'm... I don't know. At, the po at that point, he's, I guess, 17 when his wife dies. Okay. Um, And he's reading a lot. He's kind of doing what boys do, you know, just like going and like making beats, mm -hmm. you know, I'm working on my beats, like leave me alone. Um, But for him, making beats is like reading about other uh, revolutions. And he's oh, wow. really inspired by George Washington's political fervor and Napoleon's political fervor you could say okay so like early history buff yeah yeah i mean yes and very into like the revolution okay revolutions and a famine comes along to his 
region and these starving peasants steal some grain from his dad and I think that was a really big turning point for him where he was like I disagree with like you know with the actions of stealing but like what is the solution here like they're starving right like how did we get here and at age 16 he goes to a high school he's bullied for his peasant background and I feel like bullying is at the root of a lot of like dictatorships. So well, I mean, a lot of Stalin people, was notoriously bullied. A lot of people say also that part of the reason why we wound up with a president Donald Trump is because on the night of the Hollywood for not the Hollywood of the White House uh, Correspondents Association dinner, where he was being roasted by President Barack Obama, that that's sort of like the the catalyzing moment that led Trump to say. I'm going to get all these people back and to like make him decide to want to run for president. Who knows? But it's like, I could see that as being a reason. The bullied to bully pipeline is a, Mm. is a short pipeline. Yes, you're right. It's a very short pipeline. It's like scarier when those people wind up in positions of power. Yeah, absolutely. While this is also happening, we've got world war one, which just ended. Okay. And we've got the treaty of Versailles. And basically, at the Treaty of Versailles, instead of giving back these Chinese-occupied lands that Germany took to China, they're given to Japan. Uh, And China does not like that. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it's their land, I guess. of course. (laughs) This land is their land. Sure. Um, uh, I mean, just at the center of all conflict is whose land is whose. But... Uh, so as a result of that, people are really pissed. There's like a bitter nationalist uh, resentment in, in a lot of Chinese intellectuals. And, sure. and there ends up being something called the May 4th incident. What do you think happened? If I had to guess, I would say it's probably like a some sort of like a military clash yeah. or some sort of. Oh, like you weren't a, fooled by the word incident? Well, I'm just guessing because I'm like, if it's, if it gets a, if it gets a name, if it gets a name that's also tied to the date, it has to be big enough that the date should be important that people remember it. It's true. It's true. You know, the happy holidays, they don't get like a label, like incident. You just get like 4th of July, (laughs) you know, Cinco de Mayo. Sure. You just get the date and it's like, that's a celebration. Sure. But if it's like. Followed by incident. Incident. That was the massacre. Wow. That was a day of remembrance. Okay. Right? Like so Holocaust this, Remembrance sure. Day has remembrance in it. We don't just go, oh my God, it's, you know, whatever day Holocaust Remembrance Sure, because we're not is. celebrating. It's a, we should it's, know. An, it's an acknowledgement of right, historically we have to name these it. things that happened. So it yeah. actually is. It makes sense to name it what it is. Sure. So the May 4th incident was a protest that began with 3,000 students in Beijing displaying their anger at the announcement of the Versailles Treaty. Okay. And a protest turned violent. and But actually the protesters began like attacking homes and offices of ministers who were seen as like cooperating with um, the Japanese or being directly paid by the Japanese. Um, and, and, quote catalyzed the political awakening of a society which had long seemed inert and dormant and it's really interesting to see like okay this 264 year long 
um, empire like ends with a political awakening and a society like waking up to what seems inert and dormant and i obviously think about the united states being like 250 something years old here we are i feel like a lot of people are waking up and being and like things are getting more tense more violent more dissatisfied well i feel like any sort of historically no matter where you are on the planet which country you happen to be in i feel like any sort of movement that leads to societal change and I'm going to insert change isn't necessarily a good thing. Change right. is just a catalyst that brings something else. The, the something else could be much better. It could be worse than you could have ever imagined, mm-hmm. you know, following whatever the current circumstances. But for the most part, as it relates to progress, change usually starts with social movements among the people. And it almost, almost needs a majority of the people speaking freely and organizing freely to sort of bring that about because otherwise a system that's in place whether or not it's working super efficiently is at least working on some level because it exists so it's not like that system is going to just of its own volition institute something that's going to like change something fundamentally about itself or take away its own power to redirect it to something else so it Things like that always start with the people, I notice. Absolutely, yeah. If I if I were profiting from the oppression of people, I certainly wouldn't volunteer change. I think. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to think that I actually would. But it, you do bring up the question that Mao Zedong really does seek to answer, which is how does change happen? Right. How, like, yes, it comes from the people, but how do the people overtake these century old systems and he's really concerned with how does it happen in china right now in the middle of the 20th century and i'm going to tell you a little bit about how he came up with his theory okay so it takes place in about five movements um walk us through yeah i'm going to give you a brief synopsis of those five movements movement number one Mao is like, what's the difference between knowledge and action? And he's like very much in this theoretical space, okay. right? Pretty self-explanatory. Movement number two, he's very interested in revolutionary ideology, you know, the ideas of a, what a revolution is, and then like the counter-revolutionary conditions. So what's in the way of, what's objectively in the way of revolution? Number three, is known as Mao's most fruitful time. And I really think of him like Boney Bear, just holing up in a cabin and putting Taylor out Swift, four Cable albums. Knit, like really, yeah. yeah. These are the reasons for a cultural revolution. Side note, do you know what Mao's zodiac sign was? Oh my God, no. Because but let's it's giving. Check. Either mega Capricorn or mega Virgo energy. Okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll guess. I'll guess Leo. Okay. Um. Makes sense for a, a leader of the people, right? Or, I mean, he's so passionate. I could also see like a Scorpio or like a Cancer, even. Yes, yes. I bet you he's a Cancer. We'll come back to that. We've named everyone. No, I'm gonna. We're gonna answer it right now. He is born. Ooh. He's a Capricorn. Knew it. 
December 26th. Nobody, nobody prepares to this end <laughs> and identifies challenges ahead of you more than a Capricorn. Maybe a Virgo, but first a Capricorn. Words of a true Capricorn. Yes. Actually, same birthday as my friend. <laughs> Irrelevant. <laughs> Okay, so that takes us through. Okay. He's identifying sort of objectives that are on the horizon that are keeping revolution from happening. Yes. But then what? Movement five is more focused on revolutionary practice. Okay. What things can we now do? And that sort of starts with this thing called the Great Leap Forward. And the Great Leap Forward is his first like big campaign to change the fabric of chinese society and better it big undertaking big undertakings got this you know all these great plans capricorn planned to the best that he could but didn't really listen to the advice of enough scientists i would say okay and basically one of the does that mean something bad happened yeah something bad really happened okay (laughs) so one of the biggest components of the great leap forward was banning the ownership of private farms and uh, a campaign called the Four Pests Campaign. And these two things... Were pests like like ideological? Not ideological they, pests. Things. Oh, like actual pests. Like, I, um, I'll tell you about... I'll tell you... Oh, actually, yeah. Let me tell you about the pests. The Four Pest Campaign was basically like, Hey, everybody! We're going to start killing... Rats? Mosquitoes? Flies? And sparrows no not the sparrows just kill them and don't ask questions okay that is an order okay and wait that feels very like in new york all the scientists being like if you see a spotted lantern fly squash it squash it exactly and that's actually the 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 extermination of sparrows was known as the smash sparrows campaign oh what yeah sparrow smash what what was the reasoning behind getting rid of the i mean mosquitoes i get it they spread disease rats i get it they spread disease what was the other one uh flies flies i get it they spread disease sparrows what was the uh, like what was the logic behind sparrows are eating our crops oh got it okay but guess what happens when you remove a species from the food chain ecological disaster correct and so because there was no natural predator for like the locusts and shit it was just an absolute ravaging of the crop by an abundance of insects and so that really didn't go well 1962 to 66 that was like all right back to the drawing board yeah i was gonna ask what happened like what do you do after you've caused oh yeah i forgot to mention accidental eco-terrorism on your people forgot to mention so the result the ultimate result of this great leap forward was uh the deadliest famine and one of the greatest man-made disasters in human history oh wow yeah you want to take a guess how many people died of starvation the greatest in human history i'm like can i give you a range i'm gonna guess like eight to ten million people you're you're low that's low that's low it's between 15 and 55 million people that starved to death as a result of that oversight 15 to 55 
Yeah. Million? It's really disputed numbers because I guess a lot of people didn't report like deaths. Who knows? Also, it's like when you're, who knows how many like documents were changed and records. Yeah, wow. I mean, I'm not saying China censors things, but <laughs> I've heard stories. Yeah, that's, wow. Okay, wow. Um, Lots of people. Yeah. So Mao's like back to the drawing board. I got to do better. I got to show them that the Great Leap Forward, that was just a little Like misstep. Nicole Kidman in The Stepford Wives. I can do better. Exactly. Okay. See that. I totally see that. Mao Zedong realizing he can do better. Yeah. So what does he do? He comes in hot in 1966 with... Literally? Um, actually kind of cold because he jumps in a river and he's basically like showing all of his fanboys and girls how strong, how ready he is to fight the fight for their country and for the cause of true Chinese communism. Okay, so Mao Zedong's polar bear plunge in the Yangtze. Yes. Got it. Signals in the start of what is known as the Cultural Revolution. Okay. And Mao is like, I've got it. The reason for, you know, the disaster of the Great Leap Forward was not oversight on my part, but infiltration by the bourgeoisie into our proletariat revolution. And so he calls on young people to bombard the headquarters, which like it's like what headquarters, but it's like literally all headquarters. Got Anyone it. that you see as being in leadership, bombard them. OK, got it. Rip them from their seats and make them answer questions and put them through struggle sessions make them swear their allegiance to the party and prove that they are not counter-revolutionaries that they are not reactionaries and that they are not uh you know capitalist rotors who are secretly allowing bourgeois and capitalist uh values you know (laughs) cough cough money uh you know cloud their judgment wow so the youth respond by forming red guards and these are these rebel groups that are doing this bombarding of the headquarters they're going around with this little red book like the famous little red book mm-hmm. which is you know uh you could say Mao Zedong's best seller yeah like ideological handbook with like quotes of Mao Zedong philosophical you know slogans um and one of his big ones is political power grows out of the barrel of a gun and it makes me want like it makes me think about what you were saying like change starts with the people but does change also like start with violence or i don't know gandhi would say no yeah no but it does seem like at every i feel like at every juncture i mean change change, isn't necessary change itself is not a good or a bad thing it just is change is the catalyst or is violence the catalyst what comes first, change or violence? Or is violence change? No. Violence is the status quo. Yeah, I think either violence or nonviolence coexist with change. change. You're right. It's just, change is just one type of change versus another. You're so right. At the end of the day, we're all just matter and energy. And even bigger, we might just all be strings. Ooh. vibrating at a single frequency Ooh. but we'll talk about that later oh my god when our next episode next week yes oh i can't wait 
I love when Brett talks to me about string theory. I don't even know if that's string theory, though. That's string theory. Oh, okay. Amazing. Uh, I thought maybe it was a misnomer. Nope. So, we've got these red guards going into every government, school, institution that you can think of. I mean, they're probably going into the bodegas and yeah. pulling people out and being like, are you... You get a purity test, and you get a purity exactly. test, and you get a purity test. And Mao Zedong was super into this idea of contradiction and having these violent struggles that basically, like, we're all walking around and, you know, just holding all of this so stuff so close to our chest, like, in terms of our beliefs, right? Like, pretending like we agree. Um, uh, and, you know, just to be, like, peaceful. Like a physicalized debate club. Exactly. And he's like, he's like, no more peaceful, no more status quo. You are going to be forced to state your fucking opinion and we're going to be forced to hash it all out. He is like no more passive aggressive bullshit. We're going full blown. Let's let's create an elephant in the room and then slaughter it. You know what I'll say? I don't agree with obviously the violence aspect of it, but I I like at least the idea of let's cut out the passive aggressiveness let's just say what we need to say and move towards a resolution right right because that's just healthy communication yeah and no like getting like minus the violence of course yeah yeah i wonder what that would look like in america you know and like i like do you think that's already happening or no do you feel like we more not really because in america now it feels like we're very divided you know down are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Are you right. on the left? Are you on the right? You know, it still still feels very sort of like tribally divided in that way. And do you feel like we have violent struggle sessions or do they not count when they're like on Twitter only? Um, yes and no. It's like I feel like there are violent struggle sessions, but not in the same context. Like anytime you see violence happen at a rally you know anything like that that i feel like falls in under the umbrella of a struggle session mm-hmm. even though it's not state sponsored it's not like you know it's not for the same reasons but it's still ideological in nature right yeah it's not so much of a struggle session yeah it's not violent yeah it just is it's just open violence it might be good for us to have some struggle sessions in america i just think what we need is communication yeah. not struggle <laughs> sessions <laughs> You're probably right. Um, because these struggle sessions were brutal. And one of them, I mean, there were so many, but one of my favorites is the Guangxi massacre. By favorite, you mean? The most violent. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, it featured heavily beheading, beating, live burial, stoning, drowning, boiling people alive, group slaughters. I mean, this was... Kind of a genocide. Anything else? Disemboweling, digging out of hearts, livers, oh, there is more. genitals, slicing off flesh, blowing people up with dynamite, and widespread cannibalism. Oof. And you know my thoughts on cannibalism. I think it's you should clarify. Crime. Yeah, you can't just leave it at that. You have to clarify. I think that cannibalism is wrong. Um, no, I, I do think cannibalism is wrong. Sure. But I do also think that it's just interesting 
and just a side note when I was in college my professor was like stop saying it's interesting have an actual opinion but I'm still afraid of having an opinion so I'm just gonna say it's interesting no have the opinion you're in a safe space (laughs) well it's like I don't even know what the right word is it's it's not interesting it's um it's like it's I'm just going to come up with another synonym for interesting. Okay. I was going to say it's it's of note. But it can be interesting. I mean, if you truly feel it's interesting, it can be interesting. I have to come to why I think it's interesting, mm-hmm. which maybe will help me know what the word really is. But okay. it's interesting to me that anytime I feel like there's certain buzz topics in america that people automatically are horrified by like super taboo super taboo like if anyone's name gets linked to that behavior then they are persona non grata right so if you're like supposed a cannibalist like allegedly army hammer like allegedly army hammer right and like there's all of this sensationalization but i mean it's not like we sensationalize like people eating pigs or people eating cows or you know, it's like, no, but if you even joke or like if a sexual fetish of yours is imagining like sucking on a woman's femur bone, Oof. <laughs> which is what he said, um, then you allegedly, allegedly, then you are a headline news story. I mean, does it feel like maybe things are the things that we hold taboo because they have to do with us as organisms and we don't like to think of ourselves as organisms that coexist with like dogs and cats and wild animals and wild plants like we like to think of ourselves closer to like we like deify ourselves and think of ourselves as gods almost yes exactly and we're gonna definitely get into this on episode two when we get into the silent spring yes but uh yeah human beings i mean we think that we are separate from nature that whatever happens within nature what happens to plants what happens to animals somehow doesn't affect us right that we can just live entirely separate and above nature yeah and i just think that cannibalism exactly reflect like the stigma around cannibalism reflects this like anthrocentrism like humans are the best and you couldn't you can it's it's obviously wrong to eat another human right less obviously wrong to eat another animal i do think it's good we do draw the line at cannibalism like i'm not saying we shouldn't draw the line at cannibalism i'm not even saying we should stop eating chicken i mean i think we could do without the beef but (laughs) but like i do recognize it's like we have to eat something i mean i'm killing a plant if i eat a plant then, but then we get into a whole ontological debate about like what does it mean to be a human. Well, it goes back to sort of, you know, a point you sort of made in Periphery, where Mao was trying to build this new ideological system, and to create something new, something has to be destroyed for the new thing to take its place. Right. So for us to have energy to go about our day, we have to destroy something to convert that into energy right there are ethical ways of going about things and there are objectively non-ethical ways about going about things and ethics are so interesting because like you can feel in your body like the emotion of justice you know what i mean like like things that feel wrong and things that feel right but like i was saying before i mean it kind of contradicts what i was saying before which is that we're just matter and energy 
because then if we're just matter and energy why do things feel wrong and why do things feel right like constructs such as right like well, you morality kind of, you kind of get into the idea that i mean there's roughly eight billion people on the planet it'll be 10 billion people within the next few years that you know on any given day the sun rises and at the end of that day the sun sets but during that period that the sun is rising is in the sky and is going out of view for the next day to start on the other side of the planet that those eight billion people are just the universe on this planet it's experiencing itself eight billion unique times mm. all at the same time every day that's crazy. have you ever thought about that no but like isn't it more than eight billion times because it's like also well, that's just humans right so right. that's experiencing you, itself as human. as humans in in our capacity to understand and reason with morality ethics wow. the concept of right versus wrong versus as a wild animal just experiencing survival reproduction right survival reproduction that survival reproduction it's so interesting that the universe seems to or this like universal energy that runs through us as and through our consciousness or as consciousness um it that it seems to want to experience different variations of itself yeah and then it's like does that thing have actual want or is it just random fun to think about fun to think about these are the kinds of debates that they were having in china before the cultural revolution yeah which basically was like you know be careful of what you teach and be careful of what you talk about because uh we're gonna be pulling you out and we're gonna be uh interrogating you and that kind of brings us to the book with this insane image violently graphic of a red guard climbing to the top of a building and waving the flag of the chinese communist party just imagine it in slow motion super beautiful and the you know counter army members are just open firing at her and bullets fly through her like rain and you know, her lifeless body, like, jolts, and it's just, like, this beautiful description. And she falls, and, and yes, and then we enter into Tsinghua University, where a physics professor, Ye Jite, is being interrogated and tortured by four members of the Red Guard who are 14 years old. They're little girls. They have him in what? He's carrying this, like... The burden that they've put him under is almost biblical. I mean, it, it really, there's so many sort of like religious through lines that I feel like Lucis in takes as inspiration. We see him being sort of like led to the public square and he's wearing this extremely heavy metal helmet that they've fashioned for him that's intended to force his head to sort of be in like a, a downward, looking at the ground, looking at his feet, sort of like very 
subservient position to the people who are hosting the struggle session against him. And it's usually made out of like bamboo like uh, stalks. But yeah, they've intentionally made it out of iron. Difficult for him to be holding his head up. Yeah. But still, he doesn't lower his head. He fights with. It. He's described as having a thin neck, and so I imagine he's sort of like very lithe and studious and just like you know very standard professor looking totally and and something to note is also that like you know many of the professors by this point many intellectuals um had either killed themselves or had gone through these uh three phases of uh struggle and the first phase being like this arrogance this stubbornness this sort of like trying to reason with the red guards to then getting the shit beaten out of you for like 40 days and if after those 40 days you were still alive you entered phase two um according to the narrator which is numbness and then you know they continue to humiliate you and beat you and by that point if you are still alive you will cross into the third phase, which is repentance and acceptance and, you know, basically repetition of party slogans and full-blown, you know, loyalty. But Yejete, as our narrator says, stays in phase one. He stays arrogant. He stays stubborn. He will not go numb and he will not repent. And It's this... really interesting to note, too, because, I mean, it's really no matter which end you wind up with if you were if you were one of the the people from a struggle session who you know publicly amended your beliefs you know denounced everything that you until that moment had known to be true or if sadly you were one of the people that took your own life both of those are just choices of acts of self-preservation either i'm going to do what i need to do to live in this new society or i'm out this isn't for me and it's really like the only two choices. Like imagine like it's a hard choice. We were it's being next to impossible. Dragged out. And I mean, yeah, it's like America has a lot wrong with it, but something that is kind of cool is like here we are kind of speaking with impunity, you know? So like freedom of speech, I mean, it's being taken away every day. Like we are definitely we are being challenged. Fully descending into fascism in this country and that's another story for another time but but it is cool at that this point in time like we we at least think we can speak freely um to make matters worse yeah he's fighting with all of his strength to keep his head upright because they've given him this extremely heavy metal helmet but they've also put a sign on him that on which they've written his name so in black characters they've written out yay jetai but then they paint a massive red x over it just to say like this is the person that we are here to ridicule in this moment but when i say a sign i don't mean like they didn't like print it with a label maker you know they didn't like screen print it on his t-shirt they literally took the door of an oven from one of the laboratories at the university put a chain around it and put it around his neck and so he's not only having to keep his head upright but he's dragging in front of him which is like physically very difficult this heavy door that he is wearing as a sign so already like the odds against him are like pretty insurmountable i would say 
and then now he's got to go and be ideologically just stripped bare basically in front of this crowd and potentially face violence because we've you know seen so many other people face violence up to this point but then they bring somebody to be sort of a witness for the people to openly ridicule him and this is the first time that we meet his wife shaolin and shaolin comes on stage and she starts to humiliate her husband and question all of you know the lessons and and theories that he's been teaching as a physics professor and he looks at her and he has this incredible internal monologue because here is his wife who has so strategically been preparing for this cultural revolution i mean she caught on he says to the winds of change very early very early and you know kind of in anticipation she began to change what she was teaching sure instead of saying ohm's law she taught it as the resistance law maxwell's equations you called electromagnetic equations planck's constant you called the quantum constant you explained to your students that all scientific accomplishments resulted from the wisdom of the working masses and those capitalist academic authorities only stole these fruits and put their names on it and he was like the irony that that is what you did when in reality i know as your husband that the reason you became a physics professor in the first place was because of a story your father told you about meeting uh albert einstein and like spent like basically being his translator when albert einstein was on tour in um beijing and but also the irony is there was a, like a little white lie right and that his dad you know her father actually even though her father's story inspired her to go into science her father actually never even exchanged many words with einstein and only spoke with him very briefly on a walk so really minimal but then that was enough to have him sort of tell her this white lie of sort of celebrity proximity yeah and it was big enough for her that she integrated that into her entire sort of personality career raison d'être <laughs> yeah exactly so they really get into it in this struggle session and it ultimately leads to the fervor of these red guards returning just with such intensity that one of them takes off her belt and she just cracks his forehead open leaving him bloodied yep and at which point the wife thoroughly starts losing it she starts cackling to the point where people are so uncomfortable they're leaving they they were here to see the struggle session they were not here to feel like they were hanging out with the joker yes they're like we, we gotta go yeah so yay wenji who is going to be a big character later on has just seen her father be beaten to death brutally murdered by the by red these guard 14 year old red guards and her mother cackling and watching and she just watched the total destruction of everything she has known and loved and she's just like frozen there after everyone has left and gone home and the only people left in this auditorium are her and her father's lifeless body and she walks over to her father and you know doesn't really feel anything anymore right yeah it's pretty much i mean her 
at this point her world is shattered and she's left needing not only a little bit of guidance a little bit of probably just as a human feeling seen but also she's kind of just needing a friend because I mean, she's is, been left with nobody this is capital t trauma so she decides to go see her closest friend and advisor professor ruan who is a colleague of her, colleague of her former father's yeah while he was still alive and teaching of her late father she arrives to her house and the book describes it as being decorated in a very eurocentric style she studied at oxford professor ruan she traveled all through europe she, she came back german she decorated English. her home in all of these ways of putting up really beautiful i imagine like dutch master oil paintings and having really beautiful european book collections mm-hmm. with a grand piano and she herself had gone through struggle sessions for, you know, being a an implied supporter of capitalism. When when the Red Guard showed up to her house, they came in with knives and they were slashing the paintings in their frames. And a few of the books remained because they were of topics that were not deemed as reactionary. And the piano had been broken, but she kept it because she liked how the piano looked in her apartment. Also, another part of how Professor Ruan was put through these struggle sessions is she by being sort of an implicit supporter of capitalism she was sort of acted against by the red guard by them taking aspects of her fashion that were in areas mildly inspired by european standards that she picked up during her travels and during the struggle session she had makeup smeared all over her face in an attempt to make her look ugly they hung pearls around her neck tied you know high-heeled shoes around her neck just to sort of like make a very visible fashion-based denunciation of her and her support of of capitalism and so when ye wenji goes and finds ruan ruan is sitting at her desk in her chair but she has downed an entire bottle of sleeping pills. And as one final fuck you, she has delicately done her hair, put on some lipstick, some high heels, and a nice dress. Oof. Chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. She's like, fuck you. I'm going out fabulous. And it's a it's a really sad and beautiful end to the chapter um yay wenji having seen this was now like a geiger counter that had been subjected to too much radiation no longer capable of giving any reaction noiselessly displaying a reading of zero and that's chapter one that's our introduction into the world of the three body problem I know we told you this was a sci-fi and you're probably going, wait, I thought this was a sci-fi, but like, trust us. I thought the same thing. Anyone I tell, like read the book. I'm like, you have to get past the first 50 pages. Like, cause it is about way more than the cultural backdrop in which it all happens. And you might be asking sort of like, when, when do we get to where it makes sense about who has three bodies? Right. And what's really also cool is like, I'm just realizing this for the first time. I, when I first read the, you know, the beginning, I was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, what is the three bodies? Is it like mind, spirit, 
part but Mm -hmm. and then also like most sci-fis you know you think of a dystopia you think oh this is an imaginary world but actually the world that this book start the dystopia that you are introduced to is in no ways fictional right there's not a single element of fiction in the first chapter other than maybe the names of the characters but that is it all of that actually happened so it's going to be really it, it it it's a testament to later when the question of like i mean could things get worse or are we actually living in a dystopia and would like change of like a radical kind actually be better those are all things that will unfold yeah. within the context of the story. If you've been with us this long, congratulations. You've made it through the homework. You're going to be able to go through this story with such a better understanding, even just culturally, historically, of sort of a little bit more of the nuance of what the author, Louis Hissin, is laying out for us in the grand scheme of this story. Next week, we are going to be discussing chapters two and three what are those called again? Silent Spring and Red Coast One. Okay, great. So once we come back, we're going to be following the story of Ye Wenji and how she moves forward. Two years later. Two years later, getting us closer to understanding what the three-body problem means overall. Talk to you then. You've been listening to Radar Peak, a three-body podcast. Subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for exclusive content we might not have time for, subscribe to our Patreon. One last thing before you go. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review and tell your friends about us. Join in on the conversation when you follow us on Twitter at Radar Peak Pod. See you there.